Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome back Terrence Davies. <laughs> Thank you. And this is the uh, grand finale of uh, Terrence has just finished an 18-city tour, public, uh, publicity tour of the United States. So this is the grand finale before going back home. So I'll try and keep awake. <laughs> so um, anyhow, congratulations on a wonderful film. Um, I, the first thing I want to ask you about is um, w one of the, one of the uh, slight changes uh, between the book and the film is the, the ending in the book is a, is a little bit more ambiguity about um, whether she's committed suicide or not. And it's, it's very straightforward in the film, but I just wonder if you could talk, start by talking a, a bit about the ending, about what your decisions were in terms of modifying the ending a little bit. Well, when I um, read it six years ago, um, I was worried about the ending. I don't know, I, didn't, I just didn't believe it. And like in most films, when there's a problem, it's never actually in the area that you think it is. It's always in the, the real before or the real after. And so I thought, what's wrong with it? And then I realized what was wrong with it. There's, there's a, a certain sentimentality about it. She, you know, she, she meets this young woman that she's given um, charity to earlier on in the book. And the woman is poor but honest, and she has this poor but honest child, and they live in poor but honest Brooklyn. And it's all terribly kind of a bit embarrassing, really. Um, and then when she has this vi vision of, cradling this child in our arms. I couldn't make it work. I thought, that really does have to go. But along with it goes the ambiguity. Did she actually drift into this death? Did she actually kill herself? Here, in inevitably, it looks as though she's killed herself. Um, right. The ambiguity had to go. Um, because I thought, I thought, I'd rather have people thinking, well, she did it herself, rather than the sentimentality which preceded it in the book, which right. I just couldn't make work. Right. And um, could you talk about what else you felt you needed to, to change in the book? I mean, it's obviously such a, a great book that you've wanted to make for so long, but it just didn't, when you were grappling with how to adapt it to screen, what did you have to do with it? Well, the, the only template is, what do you believe? And if you believe it, then I know where to put the camera, and I hear it hourly. I mean, I just do. Where I don't feel either of those things, I know it's probably not, not right. Um, the biggest change was, in fact, conflating two characters into one. Um, there are two separate characters in the book. One is called Gertie Farish, and the other is Grace Stepney. Grace is a kind of mean-spirited spinster who inherits the money. But um, Gertie Farish is um, the cousin of Lawrence, and she has a, a crush on him. Knowing that Lily is very beautiful, and she'll never, ever be able to compete, she is very beatific about it and thinks, well, you know, I'll just be a good person, and that's really not terribly interesting. Put them together, that becomes much more interesting dramatically because when Grace refuses to help, it's not because of Christian or moral rectitude. It's sheer, plain, old-fashioned sexual jealousy. <laughs> and I'm all for sexual jealousy. God knows I thrive on it. <laughs> um, in, terms <laughs> in terms of the sexual tension in the film and, and um, the, the treatment of sexuality, two of the sequences that have been talked about as being somewhat different were the, ki the kiss, kisses between 
Lily and Lawrence Selden, which are, um, go a little bit further here than in the, in the book, I guess. If you could talk, um, yes. just talk about those, those but, scenes. It's a real um, sensuality in, um, in the way you film But, but when, people, when people love one another, it's not interesting to see them in bed. It's never, it, well, it isn't for me, which shows you how the poverty of my private life, but that's another story. <laughs> but I'm always conscious of the fact that if you see them in bed, they've got body makeup on. And I don't believe it, you know, and they don't sweat, um, and nobody ever falls out of bed. Um, th it's all sort of perfect, and you think, well, you know, real sex isn't like that. Um, it's not in, but it's also not interesting. What's much more interesting is something that has eroticism implied in it. Like, it's never interesting to be frightened. It's much more interesting to be disquieted. And if you look at, say, something like Psycho, it's actually not about murder. It's not about murder at all. That's ostensibly what it's about. What it's about is disquiet. And all the other sequels to it get it wrong because they think it's about murder. They're wrong. Hmm. Um, but it's the same with people who love one another. You look at certain things. You look at the way their hands move. You look at their mouths. You look at their eyes. Or if there's exchanges between them, there are times when you can look at each other and there are times when you can't. Because one thing has not changed even with all our liberality now, it's still difficult to say to someone, I love you. Because they might turn around and say, well, you know, I don't love you. It's very, very hard. And so in this much more constricted society, she's constantly trying to find out what he really feels. And he's the same with her. She yeah. says, why do we play always this elaborate game? But smoking is also terribly erotic. Um, because I grew up in a family of smokers, and I don't smoke. And you can tell when someone doesn't smoke. They really use cigarettes badly. They can't do it. And I've always been fascinated when <laughs> women go like that, and they look fabulous. No. And men go like that, and they look fabulous. And I go, grr, I can't do that with a cigarette. I may be able to do it with other things, but again, that's a different yeah. story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so much of what you're... Um... They're a good audience, aren't they? God it's a late night. It's, it's, it's Friday night in New York, so... Um, oh. And they think I'm Santa. <laughs> I am. I have gifts for you all. <laughs> are people surprised to find that you're so cheerful? I mean, sometimes you get this misapprehension that, that directors are going to be... It's always been struck me as odd that people think directors are going to like, be just like the films they make. And then well, I hope, I hope I like a bit. I like a good laugh myself. You know, <laughs> I like a good laugh on the set too. All this, you know, if it's art, it's got to be miserable. I can't do with all that poker up the art stuff. I find that very tedious. No, you've got to have a laugh. Um, and and uh, and I did have a, a good crew about me. I did have uh, um, a wonderful cast who had good senses of humour. And um, there was one scene I've got to tell you this because it, it's so charming. It's a story about Eric um, when he runs up the stairs at the end. He ran up the stairs, knocked on the door, and then leant on it like this. And I said, you know, don't do that, it's too modern. So he went downstairs, second take, knocks on the door and goes... I said, no, don't do that, it's too modern. Third take, he runs up the stairs, knocks on the door, you know, I say, cut, that's fine. He says, I know, don't breathe. They didn't breathe in those days. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that helps enormously, because... Yeah especially when people have got to cry and it's yeah. dramatic and it's hard for them. It's hard. Yeah. So if you can make it as though it's not the be-all and end-all, because at the end of the day, it is only a film. You know, It's yeah. not a cure for cancer. It's not mining coal. It's just pretend. 
one of the things you've done, I mean, actually starting with w using um, Wilfred Bramble in one of your early films, and then the comedian Dennis Leary in The Neon Bible, and Dan Aykroyd in this film, you have um, taken some comedians and gotten very interesting performances. Well, sometimes comedians have a, a, a huge sense of melancholy. Um, it, I think it, that's the wellspring of comedy. It's, it's actually not an optimistic view of the world. It's actually quite dark. And those of you who don't know an actor called Wilfred Bramble, he was famous in England for a, a comedy series right. called Steptoe and Son, which became Sta Stanford and Son here, I think. And it wasn't Stanford. as good. Um, but the very... But Hard the, Day's Night also. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, in the last part of the trilogy, which is my apprentice work, uh, the very first shot we did was him dying. And he was dying of chain Stokes breathing, which is very, very difficult to breathe because you, you go like this and the breaths get more rapid and shorter. And he was 78 by this time. And I said to the crew, look, when we do these takes, I don't want anyone speaking at all. When we do the take, we get, take the camera back to the end of the track and we don't say anything. We just go for take two and end board it. We did the first take, which is in fact in the film when he dies. And as we are pulling the um, camera back, I heard this little voice from the bed saying, the Duchess of Bude in Lahore said, darling, this is such a bore. I'm covered in sweat. You haven't come yet. And look, it's a quarter to four. <laughs> um. <laughs> that was a bit late. <laughs> <laughs> One of the... Uh, you were talking before about... Um, how truth comes out in, in the physical gestures and how people are look, exchange looks and the gestures that they do. One of the things that, that, one of the decisions you made, I guess, early on in adapting this novel that makes it very different than Martin Scorsese's um, adaptation of The Age of Innocence is that there's no voiceover narration. And that must have been so tempting with Edith Wharton, who in her writing, um, there's such a running sort of commentary on, um, throughout her novel. And it must have been was it, I guess, the decision to not have a voiceover, if you could talk about that? Well, I knew I didn't want a voiceover. There are only three great voiceovers in cinema, as far as I'm concerned. Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is delivered by Dennis Price, which is flawless, flawless. William Holden in Sunset Boulevard and Joanne Woodward in Age of Innocence, because I think Age of Innocence is a masterpiece. If it's not in that class, forget it. Uh -huh. okay. And you've got to... Then, you then decide, well, there's no visual equivalent of the interior monologue or the authorial voice. Equally, there's no novelettish um, version of the dissolve. You can change tenses, but that's not the same thing. As soon as you dissolve, you know time has passed, either forward or backward, but you know. So I thought what is important is what they say and what they don't say. But that's Chekhov, you know. And I'm, I've always been fascinated by the poetry of the ordinary, what people do, even in the formality of the language. And the subtext which is going on beneath it. Basically, what, what gesture does is tell you a great deal. She says, you forget. It's part of the business. And she drops her eyes. Hmm. That ha we have to cut there. Because it's, you just know there's nothing else to say. But when, you, when you're adapting it, you're trying to capture the tone of right. the novel. Uh, and she, has a, she creates a world that is quintessentially Edith Wharton. As soon as you pick up a book, you know it's Edith Wharton. Or you pick up Bronte, you know it's Bronte. Dickens, even more so. Um, so you're trying to recreate the world that she created while, whilst making it cinematic. Because, you know, watching a film is not the same as reading a book. Um, so I had to invent some of the dialogue as well. Hmm. Um, but the, the, the great thing was to keep the tone. To, I, I heard her 
tone in my head like a metronome. And if I wrote something, I thought, no, Edie would think this is second rate. Hmm. And when did you get Gillian um, Anderson? I mean, obviously, the, the main casting is, I think it's amazing, but it's, a, it's an unusual role for her, an inspired choice. So if you could talk about how you cast... Well, I was looking at a lot of singer Sargent portraits because he was the great portrait painter of the Belle Epoque. And her photograph came into the office in London. And I said, that's a singer Sargent face. And my producer said, but she's in the X-Files. I said, well, I don't know what that is because I've never watched it. And in fact, I still haven't. And I did say to her, look, you know, I haven't seen it. And she was very gracious about it. I think she was grateful because I didn't come with any preconceived ideas. Um, anyway, we had tea in Covent Garden. She came back to America and I sent her the script. I then followed her out about a week later. I auditioned her for one and a half hours. I said, I think you can do it. Will you do it? She said, yes. That's how it happened. Mm -hmm. It was much more difficult with, with the, um, the men. I mean, I saw 400 people. And when when there were nine different financiers, one of which eventually was Showtime, which made things very Kafka-esque, I can tell you. <laughs> you'd get these lists of people to see. And you'd say, but he's dead. <laughs> Apparently, death is no handicap these days. I said, fine, I'll audition him. <laughs> so people who are completely, you know, they weren't right. I mean, one man came in, very beautiful, um, which made me feel instantly intimidated. And he, he said, I was very lucky in the gene pool. <laughs> and I remember thinking, why aren't you still in it? <laughs> that was terrifying. Um, but you have to see all these people. So I did, saw all these people, and then I thought, you've got, you've got to treat them like rather stupid children. And they'd send me another list. I'd say, no, I've seen all these people. I want him. I've seen all these people. I want him. I've seen all these people. I want him. I just kept on saying it, and then, then they got bored, mm -hmm. and then they went on to someone else. But, God, it was tiresome. It was like trying to play football in treacle. And, and, and how about Dan Aykroyd? I mean, how was he cast? In this oh, movie? I mean, the same reason I just thought. I saw Gus Trenner sort of big and avuncular, but when people are big and avuncular and jolly, you never expect them to be nasty. Just as people who are generally calm, when they lose their temper, you're always shocked. Mm -hmm. And I thought, he's, he'll be big and avuncular and really rather pompous, you know, mm -hmm. but he's got something in him that if he turns, it'll be frightening. And when he does actually turn on us, um, I said, at some point in the scene, can you smile? And that chilling little smile he does, he goes, it's always the same old story. And I can feel myself going cold now, you know. And then when he pushes the chair against the door, you would expect the next line to be said like a threat. In fact, he's socially polite. He says, sit down, I'd like a word with you. That's infinitely more chilling than if he'd shouted it. Um, because he plays it, I said, you've got to play it like a big, spoiled child. And he does, you owe me $9,000. You know, and it's so petulant. But you know he can destroy her. He, he's part of her nemesis. But yeah. he, I just knew he could do it. And he was, he's a lovely man. God is a lovely man. And um, in, in the, the picture of... Um well, this was a, it's a very different film. Sort of at first blush, it seems like a very different kind of film than, than the personal films you'd made before um, about a very... But then when you look a little closer, the, the portrait of a very oppressive society um, is, is so strong here. I mean, most period films that, look, that sort of look back are sort of celebratory. They sort of look at this earlier time as um, something that's very seductive. And, and um, you know, usually there's sort of less romantic orchestral music that sweeps you along. And this has a very different take. So I'm just wondering if, about your reaction um, in reading the book to its portrait of 
of American society. I mean, we normally think of English society as being very um, stratified and, and, and oppre you know, oppressive. Which it is, but so is yours. <laughs> you, you just don't realize it. Um, but you must, you must get help, all of you. <laughs> I know a very good therapist. <laughs> he and I have really bonded. Even he hates my father now. <laughs> but what, what was a surprise was when I started to do sociological research and found that in 1900, there were 140 families in the Blue Book in New York. Uh, they could trace their f families back to the Dutch and uh, British settlers of the 17th century. In the year 2000, there were the same 140 families. Hmm. Quite extraordinary. Hmm. Um, and those, those, what you had then was um, a ruling oligarchy that, that had money, that had the prestige of being here for 200 years. But it was actually infinitely more oppressive than British society. I mean, reading her autobiography, um, she came to England and she was introduced into British society as Mrs. Wharton, who writes. She was never introduced that way in New York society because to write for a living and to earn money was considered vulgar. You just didn't admit it. And she said, I felt as though I'd committed some kind of sin which they'd all vaguely forgiven me for. Um, so seeing how rigid that was um, comes from an imbibed idea of what the British upper class ruled with. But what happens is that when you imbibe it from another country, it becomes sort of ossified, and there are numerous rules, but no one tells you what they are. But if you break them, the revenge is swift and deadly. And it was <laughs> it, more deadly because they have a pattern of wealth, of manners, of culture. And when people do it like that, it's infinitely more chilling. But it, it is, and you, it, it was there then, it's here now. It's only, the only thing which has changed is its manifestation. Now, it's if you've got a lot of money and you're very beautiful, you know, um, you can become rich and famous simply by having a good body. You know, the, the men all have big pecs, six packs and huge genitals. And the women, do not have huge genitals, as far as I can tell. Um, but you can become famous for that, and then some kind of moral weight is given to you because you have all this money. The, exactly the same thing happened in be the Belle Epoque. And the ruling class always impose what the rest of it should live by, but they never actually do that. And, and what the tragedy, one of the tragedies of Lily is the fact that she knows with her head what the game is. She, don't, she can't play it with her heart. And the game is... You marry for wealth and position. You have your peccadilloes on the side. You just don't get found out. Mm. She doesn't realize that at all. She's seduced by surface. Mm. Um, a lot, it seems like a lot of your feelings about this um, social structure come through in the, in the choice of music. And, and I was talking about most period films use this much more sort of lush orchestral style of music and, and your decision to use a very um, sort of structured chamber music that has a strong sense of melancholy uh, was very evocative. I'm just wondering if you can talk a bit about, well, about the music. I wrote a lot of the music actually into the, into the script because the way I write it, I write every track, pan, dissolve, every bit of music. Mm. Everything's in there. So I know it hourly and visually. Mm. Um, when we had got into the cutting room and we got sort of almost to a fine cut, someone said, you know, you're going to have a score. And I said, no. What I didn't want was Lily's theme and Lawrence's <laughs> theme. And when they walk up the stairs, walking upstairs music. I said, I don't want any of that. Right. Um, we'll, and I found this man called Adrian Johnson, who's really, really smashing. And he said, 
it doesn't need a score. I thought, good, I've, I've, he, this is a nice lad, I thought to myself. <laughs> um, and then we went through and we thought, where, can we, where does it need it? And where we needed it was in the woods of Bellamont. And so he had the idea of taking the tune from the oboe concerto, which begins and ends the piece, transposing it for string quartet, but leaving the cadence unresolved, because the, the scene is unresolved. He then found some um, Morton Feldman, which I, I'd never heard, um, for the, the music he wrote for the Rothko Chapel, which is basically timpani, um, strings, a viola, and um, a soprano voice. We use that. Um, and then he found... I said, in the house, when she takes the chloral after she's spoken to Sim Rosedale, she should hear someone playing something in the house, like an old cylinder. And we found this Estonian um, song called Stille, Stille, which was actually written by the Jewish resistance during the Second World War, but it's got the most wonderful kind of period feel to it, and that sob that Jewish music has in it. And so we re-recorded and put all the scratches on. All that's us. Um, mm. And then at the end, I said, well, can we have the whole of the Notturno from the Borodin Second String Quartet mm. over, over the credits? Because as you can see, they go on for ages. You know, <laughs> they're practically as long as the film. You've got to, you know, you've got to put everybody on there. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that this film has, to me, is such a sense of um, intimacy and, and like real atmosphere that a lot of period films don't have because there's like so much production design and costume. And you have, there's a use of natural light, for one thing, and also natural sound. And you were talking during dinner about how you, uh, when I was surprised to hear that you use a lot of um, synchronized sound. In other words, it's very, in most movies, most uh, of uh, the majority of the sound is, is sort of recorded after production. And it, that seems to uh, make, I think it makes a big difference in the feel, the atmosphere yes. of your films. Could you talk uh, about, about but, that? But, I mean, the American actors found this very peculiar when I said, you know, um, no, we stop if there's a bus going by or there's a, an aeroplane going. Well, we can post up. I said, no, we can't. I don't do that because uh, I, I just don't like it. And we recorded, post recorded very, very little. Um, but we had a wonderful sound man called Louis Kramer and um, the man who mixed it, yeah. Paul Hamlin, could do anything. I mean, he can get, take planes out of the background. Uh, how they do it, God alone knows. Um, but they're wonderful. But I, I, I don't think you can recreate what it was like on the set in a studio. So there, were, there was very, very little that we had to do. Um, uh, one of them was one of the lines in, in, the, um, in the woods. She says, instead of saying, Jean fille à marier, she says, Jean fille à marier, which means that she's a yellow person who's unmarried, which I said, you know, it's wrong. You're not, you're not from the Orient, lovey, I said. <laughs> um, and another thing I just wanted to ask about, the, the use of natural light. I mean, so, so many scenes that are... Um, interior scenes where there's sunlight streaming in. Uh, I mean, how much are you, are you actually using sunlight and natural light? Through? Well, it's a mixture of, of uh, natural light and fill. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my great love is Vermeer. And uh, in Vermeer, you'll always have light falling onto subjects through a window. And there's w something wonderful about natural light, which is diffused, falling in mm -hmm. on a subject through a window. But if you put a very, very, very big light outside um, and diffuse it, it's even better than Vermeer. <laughs> believe me. Um, so uh, that, that's, the, the look is something that you feel and then you do lots and lots and lots of tests and then say, that's the look. You know, that's the look. Okay. Um, I'd like to give the audience a chance to jump in and ask questions if anybody... Uh, right here. Water, 
Okay. Yeah, the question is the transition to the Mediterranean, the transition. Yeah. Oh, a comment. Thank you for that scene. Of the, uh... Well, I tell you, I had to fight to keep that in. Fight who? I'm not telling you. <laughs> this person said to me, it's superfluous. I said, not unlike yourself. <laughs> I later had him killed. This is a cutthroat business, isn't it? Yes. But I was really proud of that sequence. I really was. I worked really hard on it. And then someone comes and says, well, you know, you can cut that. We need to get three minutes out. And you think, over my dead body. And you know that they can arrange that. No, I really have to fight for that. I also, I also have to fight for the scene between Grace and um, Lily when she goes and asks for money. Oh, cut it down. I said, no, you don't cut it by so much as a frame. I won't have it cut. I came in one day. One line had been taken out. I went berserk. I said, who told you you could do this? I mean, and these are the people who put the money in. You know what I mean? They're the big people. Um, oh, well, we th- I said, put it back in. It's not negotiable. Put it back in. I was so angry. Um, I was terribly butch as well. <laughs> and they did as they were told. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right here. Okay, I guess the, the, the question is about the theme of re- repressed emotion, which um, he's saying is run, runs through all of your films, and how, do you, how are you able to deal with translating that to this portrait of American society, or you know, dealing, placing that into a different setting than your previous films? But in that book, that's what it's about. It's, it's about what you feel as opposed to what you say. I mean, when they're being nasty, they can say what they feel. When it's the truth, their emotions... They're like inept teenagers. They don't know what to say. And they play a game. And they're so attuned to nuance. They're exquisitely attuned to nuance that, of course, if you get it wrong, it's like a domino effect, and then that is a cumulative domino effect. And they're no different um, uh, from the the, the way the the British are. I mean, uh, we're frightened of emotion. It, It starts to become easier, but we're still... We're still terribly frightened of it. People say they love you. You know, you, you're, you're pleased, but the, you're, you think, oh, well, that's very nice. It's all that. My families, when they say to me, I love you, they get terribly embarrassed, you know, um, and they go <clears throat> like that. But it doesn't change. You go back to that period, and they are circumscribed by, what they, by their lives. The women had to be decorative and fertile. That was their job. Um, so what do you do when you've been brought up to, to marry well, you marry well, you have children or you don't have children, and then what do you do? You spend your life ch- 
changing from one dress to another because throughout the day you had to change for every single activity. That's what you had to do. Imagine being someone like Bertha Dorset who's actually intelligent. It, it subverts that intelligence and, and makes her become like an anaconda. With other people, it cripples their emotions. I mean, at least she seems to have some kind of good sex life or had it with Lawrence. The others don't because that was a... That was a um, that was a, 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 myst a mystery that was kept. I mean, when Edith Wharton herself got married, she said to her mother, Mother, what advice do you have for me? And her mother said, and I quote, You've been to museums, haven't you? Yes, mother. You've seen statues, haven't you? Yes, mother. You've seen that men and women are different, haven't you? Yes, mother. Then what else do you need to know, Edith? <laughs> That's what she said. So, I mean, coming from that background where the most intimate thing like sex is never even discussed what do you do about real emotion you're frightened of it because it's part of the terror of never knowing exactly where you are or what you can or cannot say what a, a, a well brought up woman was allowed to say what a well brought up gentleman could not say I mean, it, it's all of that that's in the book and I, my template was not any other book my, my template was in fact Chekhov who does the same at, at moments of high drama, what does he have people say? The most banal things. In Three Sisters, Tusenbach we know is going to get killed. And what does he say? Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It is not said. And that's intrinsic in the novel. You just have to be truthful to, the, to that world that she creates. It's there in the book. So that was a huge help. And how did this translate to your working with these actors? I mean, these, um, there's so many great performances in here. I mean, Eric Stoltz, I think, has never been better, and, and um, you know, Dan Aykroyd and Jillian. Um, just in terms of getting the right emotional tone, um, in terms of your working with, with actors on the set, if you well, could talk it, about that. Well, it changes. I mean, I've been an actor, and I know what it's like, but I can tell an insincere gesture at a thousand paces. I can tell when someone doesn't understand a line. I just can analyze a text. Um, but also, you have to sense it on a day-to-day, shot-to-shot basis. Some days they come on and you think, they're really on form today. I've, all I need to say is very little. Just nudge them towards what I want. Other days, you know that they're going to have a struggle and you've got to give a lot of direction. Um, I'll give you two examples. Um, when she dies, that's only the second take. And all I said to her was a line from Keats, to cease upon the midnight with no pain. And she said, fine, I'll do it. We did it in two takes. Um, with, when she's with Mrs. Hatch, that took 28 takes. She was tired, you know. You know she's in every shot. Of course she's going to be tired, you know. So you have to give much, much more direction. The, the difficulty, actually, was the difference between the traditions of American acting and British acting. Um, at best, British acting is wonderful at suppressed passion. Um, at its worst, it's just wooden. Um, no, it's true. American acting at its best is a wonderfully controlled passion. At its worst, it's sentimental where everybody cries and tells everybody that they love one another. You have to watch that. And I, I said to her at the end, I don't want you to cry. Don't you dare cry until you go to Lawrence. I won't have you cry. And she said, okay, fine. So you've got to play it stoically because that's much more, much more moving. And um, I said... You can cry then, and when you, see, when you say goodbye to Rosedale, I want your eyes to fill with tears, and I want you to smile. I didn't tell her why, but I, I can remember one of my sisters had very bad postnatal depression, and she had to go into a mental hospital for a while. 
And I said goodbye to her one Saturday night. And that's what she did. She just smiled and her eyes filled with tears. It broke my heart. I'll never forget that image. And I said, if you do that, it will be really, really moving. Because I saw it in real life. Um, so the, the difference between the traditions, you've got to get a kind of homogeneity. Um, and you do that on a daily, on a daily basis. Um, ag- again, Eric was always so, uh, so comic about it. He'd say, can I do this? And I'd say, no. And he'd say, oh, go on, let me. And I'd say, oh, all right then. Um, or he'd say, can I do this? I'd say, yes. So oh, that's fine. Can I do this? I'd say, no. He said, I'm going to leave the film. I'd say, bye. He said, you're supposed to persuade me to stay. <laughs> it was lovely. <laughs> it was just lovely. Um, so, but what you're trying to get is that they have to, it has to be homogenous. There's nothing worse than it being different styles. You know, like you've got to get the accents right. You've just got to. And English actors now have got a very, very good ear for American accents. That, that was not always the case. It was not always the case. But now, they're pretty good. I mean, I can even do a very good Walter Brennan myself. From Rio Bravo. Hey, Duke! (laughs) Haven't I made it live? Well, we are going to let that be your last word on this American tour. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.